Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 107, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, we've been doing this podcast every week for over two years now, which kind of still blows my mind a little bit. But, you know, I do meet people now and then, and like I mentioned I do a podcast to them. And the one thing they always ask is like, well, what's your show about then? And I, I kind of summarise it that this podcast is all about the history of video games. Yeah, that's what I think. The history and invention and creation of video games. And charting the story as well, because you think, I mean, mainstream kind of gaming has been going now for like, what, about 40 years? Well, yeah, 40 years. And I like to say that actually we're the backstage of video gaming, because, you know, you see a lot of the stuff out there in public, and we we try and tell the stories from behind the scenes. Yeah, and a lot of it was, because I know obviously in this day and age we've got stuff like Twitter and Facebook, you're a bit more connected with the people that were behind these games and the stories, but... Back then, I mean, you know, when you were a kid, you'd read about it in magazines and stuff, but... Well, there'd be these heroes on the front cover. Yeah. You'd just see these names, like Rob Hubbard, and you'd just be, oh, my God, They were like that? rock stars, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. You, you thought in your mind you had about as much chance as, like, as talking to Rob Hubbard as you did, like, you know, Madonna or someone. It's like, yeah. you know what I mean? No chance at all. But now, I mean, because we've been doing this show, we're getting to talk to all our heroes week in, week out. And it's funny you mentioned Rob Hubbard because we were hanging out with him last weekend. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we, we did fail to record stuff at the beginning, but now we're actually capturing these things quite well. So <laughs> we're going to bring you an amazing talk today. It's with Rob Hubbard, David Wise and Graham Norgate. Now, we recorded this at the All Your Bass Festival in Nottingham, which was, um, it was on last weekend, first of its kind as well. And this was an entire weekend, two days, dedicated to video game music. Oh, it's amazing. You know, all the signatures on my computer, I managed to get like 10 more. It's just completely ran, the amount of people that were there. Yeah. You know, just famous stars. Oh, my God. And we went along on, like, the Saturday morning. Um, David Wise was doing, like, a live performance of the Donkey Kong Country soundtrack, yeah. which was great, like, sitting there watching him play it live. Then after that, we brought everyone upstairs. It was a bit like being at school, wasn't it, right? Everyone come on, move yeah, to the next yeah. class. <laughs> everyone follows yeah. upstairs. We had this little panel set up, and we recorded the whole thing, and it was just so interesting, especially getting, I mean, because these three guys are kind of from different generations in terms of, you know, the games they worked on. Rob, obviously massive on the 8-bit scene. He did stuff like we're on the Super Nintendo and that kind of thing. Uh, David Wise and Graham Norgate, uh, obviously Rare, and they were known for like, you know, GoldenEye, um, Time Splitters they worked on as well. But also, you know, David Wise was doing a lot of uh, Donkey Kong stuff as well, yeah. and he was kind of in that Nintendo department, which, uh, you know, he talks about how excited he was to get MIDI yeah. when everyone else was rocking CD audio. So they were all in their own little worlds as well, you know. So it's interesting to get the story, I mean, you know, pretty much from the N64 to the Commodore 64 off, yeah, like the band yeah. like we did this yeah. week. So we're going to bring you that live on the Retro Hour podcast, the live recording from All Your Bass Festival coming up in around 25 minutes from now. Definitely worth hanging around for that. Now, we've got to give a shout to our good friend Adam Spring, who he does a podcast called Remotely Interested. And... His podcast, I mean, we talk about stuff we cover. He covers way more things than we do. Oh, yeah. If, <laughs> if you want to get deep in yeah. Adam's podcast, you know, he has guys that do, like, laser scanning. He has architects on there. He's had some guys from AutoCAD on there. Yeah. But he's also got some guys that we really like as well, which is, like, oh, Kim Justice he had on there. Yeah. He's just got AVGN, Angry Video Game Nerd. So James Rolfe 
is on the current episode. And, you know, because we'd love to get James on our show, and I'm sure it will happen one day. But he, he said he's been working on getting James on his show for two years. Oh, yeah. So. And, you know, James is amazing because he's done a Cinemassacre as well, which is a kind of celebration of films and the background of films as well. It's not just video games he's interested in. And I think, you know, that is one of the big appeals for for me of his channel. I love, like, the James and Mike Mondays they do, you know, the sit-down-just-play-games. AVGN, I mean, that was kind of, we all, anyone that watches YouTube into retro gaming. We best, all... best video I liked, you know, sorry to interrupt, but the best video I liked was when he went to Back to the Future locations yeah, yeah. and then showed them and then showed the film. That was cool. But I think, you know, anyone that watches retro gamers on YouTube, we all started with AVGN. Yeah, yeah. He's always the first one that we all watched. But then, like you said, I love his videos about movies and stuff, and like, you know, the monster movies he does mm. from like the 50s. and A really interesting guy. And... There was a bit of con- controversy last year when he did that, you know, I won't be watching the new female Ghostbusters film. Yeah. He was even in, like, you know, the papers and all that, people calling him misogynistic and all that. Unless you watch the video, then you understand his reasoning. Yeah. Um, but he, he's Because he's a major Ghostbusters fanboy. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, As am yeah. I, you know. Yeah, yeah. I always have been. So I kind of, I did go and see the film. Wish I never did in the end, if I'm honest. <laughs> but AVGN, I mean, what a legend. And if you want to check out this interview, I mean, Adam's podcast is really worth a listen. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're very good friends with Adam. Um, so do check that out. It's called Remotely Interested. And we'll put a link in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. If you're having a bit of a surf around our website today, I mean, there is a little uh, button that you might spot in the corner of the website that is completely optional to click on, but we'd appreciate it if you did. Yeah, you can always, you know, donate, and we accept donations in kind of every currency because you could put it into PayPal, but also on the Ethereum network and Bitcoin. Yeah, so if you're into cryptocurrencies, we do them. Or, like you said, I mean, there is a PayPal button on there. You put in, like, your local, you put euros, dollars, anything in there, really, can't you? Yeah, anything. Yeah, Yeah, so if you like to make a donation in the show, as much or as little as you like, anything will qualify your place in the Hall of Fame. And obviously, all goes back into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. And let's, let's just keep doing the show every week because, you know, it yeah, takes, yeah. takes a lot of time. We have a lot of costs doing the show. You know, you know, it's going to be like, this is Retro Hour episode 999. <laughs> <laughs> but only if the donations keep us going yeah. that long. So if you want to make a donation, all you got to do is click onto our website, theretrohour.com. This week, finding their place in the Hall of Fame. Thank you for your donation. Matthew Martin, Adrian O'Lone, Bart Pellens, and Jonathan Kay, who all made donations this week. You can do the same and find your place in the Hall of Fame. We'll give you mention in the future episode of the Retro Hour podcast. Head on to our website, theretrohour.com. Right then, should we do some new stories? Yeah, totally. Now, you know that I'm a big fan of the Nintendo Switch. Oh yeah, definitely. This is where I put this story in. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I think the Nintendo Switch is up there my favourite consoles ever. And I play it more than anything else at the moment. You know, just because it's a system I can take. You know, I went to um, Bet last week in London, took yeah. my Nintendo Switch there, playing it on the train on the way down, been able to play like proper games yeah. anywhere you go in the hotel room on the night. It was awesome. But apparently there is some big Nintendo Switch news this week. Yes. Yeah, so um, it's really hard to jailbreak or have any kind of non-Nintendo software running on there. Yeah. Um, a group called Team Executor, who are the bad boys, they basically have done the previous emulators on the 3DS. Yeah. And on the Wii U hacks as well. Did they hack the Wii U? Yes. Okay, so right. They, Which was a good hack, to they, be fair. Well, there was, there was a good one, and then the update killed it. Now, what they've said is they've got a future-proof hack. So this means anything that Nintendo put out will not remove uh, this... Um, this modification yeah, they've done then. So yeah. this is for the Nintendo Switch. Yes, and it's not going to be affected by an update so this switch then opens up options for you to have stuff on the switch and they're saying there's a new emulator that's going to come out and it's okay from yuzu 
and Yuzu was a previous emulator. Yeah, I've heard of that. What what was that for? Uh, that was for the 3DS. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, with this, they do say this kind of modification will probably open the door to mass market piracy, um, allow you to run copied games and stuff on there, which, you know, some people I'm sure will take advantage of. I'm looking at this, and, you know, I know you hacked your Wii U. Yeah. I'm a bit torn on this. I think morally, you know, there is a bit of a difference between hacking a system that's kind of been abandoned and dead, like the Wii U. Yeah, and the new one. Yeah, yeah. or one that's kind of ascending still. It's really strange as well, because I know this is, they say, this emulator will do everything you need it to do. So it'll probably play all the old stuff and the new stuff. But I find it really weird that people are making emulators for modern consoles. Mm. So there's Switch emulators coming out on the um, PC. Yeah. Well, and they did that with the Wii U as well, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. It's really odd, that is. I just... Yeah, it's strange. I find there's cool features, though. So, like, there's the PlayStation 2 emulator, yeah. and that actually adds anti-aliasing, adds extra effects that weren't available on the original games to them and upgrades them. So, you know... They look a lot better, actually. God of yeah. War can look HD, you yeah. know, and, yeah. See, I, I think with the Switch hack, I'm kind of in two minds about it because I love the system and I don't want all the games to suddenly get pirated and all the third-party developers leave it. Yeah. That'll be the worst-case scenario. On the flip side... I would love to have a little portable system that runs all the ROMs and all the old classics. I'd just love to watch videos on it or YouTube, you know, <laughs> even if people have different applications. So there was um, one for the Wii U, which was kind of a drawing program. And I just used that. I didn't have my uh, drawing program on the Nintendo one, so I just used the cracked version. So it all depends what you want to use it for. But I think it's kind of positive news for homebrewers and modders. Maybe, and pirates as well, probably. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I think it's pretty... Amazing that they've hacked the Switch already because the Xbox One still hasn't been cracked. Yeah. I think there is like a jailbreak doing the rounds that's kind of very flaky for the PS4. But the fact the Switch hasn't been out a year yet and they've already hacked it. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that, you know, you're going to be able to get all the old emulators is just going to be amazing. Well, what would be kind of shocking is if they bring... I mean, they're saying this is going to be out in the spring. Because I know Nintendo, from the rumours I've seen, are working on the virtual console to let you play SNES and NES yeah. games on it. If this beats it to market, then that's taking like Nintendo's face, isn't yeah, it? But, yeah. you know, it's like Jurassic Park, isn't it? Life will find a way. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the will. Now, a classic game that we'd all like to see, uh, because can you believe it's actually been the 20th anniversary of Resident Evil 2? I absolutely love that game. You know, it's one of the titles for my PlayStation. PS1 classic. Oh, scared the hell out of me, but it was just so good. Those dogs, you know, yeah, when they yeah. come to you, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you think of the original Resident Evil games, they kind of, they were the the franchise that really set off survival horror games. Totally, and it was all the little atmosphere. So, like, you know, the scene changes between it. You wouldn't just have a blank screen. You'd have a door that would go... Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Just little little moves like that. Because I played stuff like Alone in the Dark and that before it, but yeah, Resi was really the first game that made yeah, me like... Other than that Silent Hill, my heart stopped on that game. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, Resi was <laughs> up there. <laughs> and I remember like me and my brother playing that would have all the lights off and stuff, you know, like yeah. popcorn on the go, like big glass of Coke and playing that like till like three in the morning, you know what I mean? Very good game. Um, but obviously, people want to go back to Spencer Mansion. You know, oh, 20 years later. Of course, of course they do. And this has been, I mean, do you remember, it must have been about, what, three years ago now? 
they announced they were actually doing an HD kind of update of Resident Evil 2. Capcom announced it. To be honest, I thought it had already been done and released <laughs> and we'd missed it, you know, because that, that was ages ago, wasn't it? Well, they've done like kind of the up- updated packs and stuff, haven't okay. they, with like improved okay. graphics and all that. But there has been, you know, apparently they were working on a project to do a full remake of Resident Evil 2. They got about 70% of the way through and apparently the production team thought it's not working, so they scrapped it. Oh, wow. Okay, wow. So that's the thing. It's... It really is something the fans have been dying for, and it's like the fact that now it's the 20th anniversary, it would be a really good time for that game to come out. And as it turns out, I mean, I'm probably going to completely mince his pronunciation here, but um, Hideki Kimiya, who was the original developer of Resident Evil 2, on the anniversary, which was like last weekend of Resident Evil 2, the 20th anniversary, loads of people were flooding him on Twitter with requests of like, you know, is it going to be coming out again then? Is the game getting remade? Are you involved in it? Turns out... He's not involved in it at all, but he said he's heard that his friend is directing the Resident Evil 2 remake. Let's trust him and wait for new information. Ah. It's a kind of confirmation that it is going on still. It's, it's still going on, yeah, and it sounds like he's got a bit of passion behind the project as well, you know, being the original dude, he wants to, you know, see it happen. Yeah, well, he said... happen he, well. He said he, he went drinking with the guy who's remaking it last <laughs> year and told him, do it the way you want. So he's kind of handed over the bat and said, okay, look, you know, okay. I'll trust you to do this. Yeah. But there are rumours that we are going to see that this year. So, Oh, oh, exciting stuff. Halloween, it could be a good time to release oh, that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. When you love to play that on Halloween night. <laughs> over the glow of your pumpkin. <laughs> <laughs> now, there was a movie that I saw recently. Um, got to give a big shout to Stephen Fletcher here. The Commodore Story. Ah, yes, I've still not seen it yet because I missed the bloody train and I was <laughs> running at the train you, station. Rabbi. It was Only going chug, 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 just going off. And it wasn't steam, but it's <laughs> diesel in Nottingham because they're cheap. In your mind. <laughs> so this, uh, I had to see this in London. It was actually the day after my birthday, back in December. Uh, I Samantha came with me and we'd had a night out night before. Must admit, probably got in about four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. yeah. Went to uh, Ronnie Scott's Jazz Bar in Soho. Oh, nice, yeah. Very nice, sitting yeah. there with like, you know, drinking cocktails till about four in the morning. Um, and then next day, yeah, we went slightly hungover, I've got to admit, to watch the Commodore story. And it was at the a place called the Genesis Theatre. Yeah, yeah. It's There's a irony. preview, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a massive turnout. We packed the cinema out. Loads of Commodore and Amiga fans all there watching this film. And I've got to say, I mean, I, I love a lot of the Commodore movies that have come out over the last couple of years. Obviously, we had Viva Amiga. Um, that was really good. We had Bedrooms to Billions, the Amiga years. Again, another great movie. But this and one... The Commodore Wars as well, though. Was that one as well? Yeah. Well, this one, I mean, was really... It was Steve's kind of personal story. He wanted to get the story behind the people, not necessarily the machines. Mm. And he went to visit, like, uh, Leonard Tremiel, Jack Tremiel's son, and got some stories that I'd never heard before, you know, about Jack's personal life and how growing up affected him and just what it was like to be like the the son of a guy who invented one of the biggest computer companies in the world. And it's about two hours long, and they get some great stories in there. You know, Bill Hurd's in there, who's always hilarious. Yeah. Um, Dave Haney telling his story, you know, in his back garden sitting there, like, just reminiscing and stuff. So it's a great film. And now I've seen, there is some news about this. I think it's going to be on Netflix I've seen. Oh, really? Yeah, so I, I saw did... someone talking about that the other day. Oh, nice, because I've, I've noticed that they've, they've got a... Uh kind of pledge um, on the Kickstarter to get the film. Yeah. And it's really reasonable. It's £10 yeah. per copy of the movie. Um, or you can get a digital e-book version as well. They have extra stuff like Commodore cassette T-shirts. They have um, these little Commodore playing cards as well. And, you know, it's all different scales of pledging. But I think £10 is a really good price. 
So that's to own it. Yeah, for a digital download, yeah. Yeah, or, I mean, I'm looking here at the end, end of this article, so it has been confirmed. It is going to be on Netflix, Amazon Video and iTunes on February 23rd. Oh, wow, that's that's so. great that it's going to be on Netflix. We're going to be on Netflix, Dan. Yeah, God, yeah, I'm in that film, aren't I? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Forget about that. Yeah. There you go. I have to get my little uh, page made on IMDb this afternoon, yeah. then, aren't I? So it's definitely worthwhile watching. I mean, even, you know, my missus sat through it and she cares nothing about computers no, or yeah, Commodore. She's probably, she, she, out of everyone, she probably wants to hear the least of it. You know, <laughs> she's heard it all her life. So. I mean, especially the stuff she was saying, like I said, you know, from Leonard and all that at the beginning. Yeah. So it is a movie that I think you can introduce anyone to the subject to and they'll enjoy it just from like watching the people behind the passionate project. Totally. So it's definitely worth a watch and we'll put that, uh, the link to it in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. If you're looking for good stuff to watch as well, now tell us about this Golden Eye mockumentary. Oh, this looks so funny. So, you know they had the um, uh, King of Kong, yeah. which was the Donkey Kong. Well, they're making a fake one, uh, which is going to be the British equivalent, which is called Going for Golden Eye, like Going for Gold. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. And it's basically a fictional mockumentary which is about uh, the world's GoldenEye 007 champions, like in their heyday, you know, when GoldenEye was the top game. And uh, they're deluded, cringe-inciting elite GoldenEye players who wonder why the world no longer cares about their beloved game. Good question. Yeah, and <laughs> and they're kind of um, got the original GoldenEye development team involved with this film. Right. And they've got really good feedback. So, you know, probably David Doak and all of those guys might be involved with it. And it's going to be coming out in Blu-ray and uh, DVD and video on demand. So there's a little trailer here on the website. Yeah, play um, a bit. Of play it. a little bit there, shall we? When it comes to pure competition, nothing compares to the Golden Eye World Championships. Four players all on one screen. The way competitive games are meant to be played. None of this online gaming bollocks. <laughs> I can't think of any other athlete who's been on top of their game for almost two decades. Ethan, the 19-time champion, is my hero. He's a brand, a franchise. The power, the integrity, the skill. Being a 19-time world champion means 19 people have faced me and 19 have failed. <laughs> This actually does look quite funny. It reminds me a bit, you know, the filming style of it? It reminds me of Shaun of the Dead, actually. Yeah, exactly. yeah, they, they, they've kind of gone for the, like, Shaun of the Dead, a, a spinal tap, you know, kind of just taking a Mickey style. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, I just think what a great idea for an indie movie. And obviously, these guys love the game. And they've yeah, obviously and I, think, I think they've seen other movies like King of Kong and stuff and how serious they are, and they kind of just want to... Yeah. <laughs> Should be good for a giggle, I think. Oh, totally. Now, if you're going to play um, GoldenEye on your N64 back in the day, obviously you'd use that controller that's kind of infamous. Yeah, with the with the weird kind of free prongs, wasn't it? <laughs> so I remember people used to shoot with it. I don't know. Hold it, it like but, a gun. Yeah, but yeah. there are a few games that you could shoot with it. That really springy analog stick in the middle on the N64 controller. Yeah. Obviously, the one thing that kind of peters all off a bit back then, I mean, the N64 wasn't as bad because it did have quite a long cable. Mm. Uh, but you remember your mum would always say to you, don't sit too close to the TV, you'll ruin your eyes. <laughs> yeah. But you had to back then, because the wires were so short. Now, there is a new version of the N64 controller that apparently is every 90s kid's dream. Yeah, and this is uh, kind of aimed at emulators. So um, you can connect it on your PC. Yeah. It's Bluetooth and, you know, that thing. It's great for Project 64 and all of these unofficial emulators. But it looks exactly the same, like really, really close to it. That's the thing because I always find, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm not a fan of that controller. 
No, no. Never liked it. And because I never had an N64 when I was growing up. I mean, I well, always I liked, over I it. liked it with the rumble pack. <laughs> it was so heavy. And it was like, boom, boom. Yeah. It did a lot of add-ons, a lot of add-ons and accessories yeah, for yeah. it, didn't it? But, I mean, the only game that... That, that controller was designed for Mario 64, wasn't it? I think so. I'm, uh, I, I heard it was Goldeneye or it was... No, no, no for one of the first-person shooters. I there was lots of rumours when it came out. Well, well wasn't it? Mario 64 was one of the launch games, wasn't it? Oh, and yeah. That yeah. Was, I'd read that that was a reason that controller was designed specifically for that game. Okay. But then it meant that every other kind of game genre had to kind of shoehorn its controls into yeah, it. Yeah. And it wasn't a natural fit. I mean, I think, obviously, the nostalgia is very strong for that controller, but I don't find it very comfortable to use a lot of the time. But if you are going to play those games on an emulator... It is obviously a lot better using the original controller than it is trying to use a keyboard or something. Yeah, that's it. And you know, this one's really reasonably priced. It's like thirty-four dollars, mm. which you know, in pounds is going to be even cheaper. Uh, well, exactly the same, but in pounds. <laughs> probably the moment. Yeah. yeah. But again, it's like well, what I think they should do though is you said this is for emulators. Can't they make a little Bluetooth dongle that you put in the front of the N sixty-four and get to use? That yeah, that? I don't know. You've got to invent it, Dan, and you'll get the gap in the market and then suddenly <laughs> Just give it away be a idea. millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't got the skills or talent to make that. Who am I kidding? I might even be able to put a Raspberry Pi Zero and get that to do the uh, interfacing. You just want to shove a Raspberry Pi in everything, really. <laughs> yeah. Stop putting Raspberry Pis in everything. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to find out more about that, you know, if you do like emulation. But again, I mean, you could probably get that working with a Raspberry Pi because you can get a Bluetooth. Don't yeah, go for the Raspberry yeah. Pi, can't you? So there you go. There's your use for your Raspberry Pi. <laughs> so if you want to find out more, it will be in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Right, guys, thank you for checking out episode number 107 of the Retro Hour podcast. Don't forget Play Expo Blackpool is coming up very soon. You can book your tickets if you haven't already. You know, we've got some amazing panels we're going to be doing over the weekend. There'll be retro gaming, trading markets there as free well. Free-to-play arcades. You know. Hundreds of free-to-play arcades. And, of course, uh, you know, we'll be at the bar all night as well. Blackpool drinks, I mean... What what you save and kind of you know the cheap ticket prices this time of year in the hotels, the bar as well is like about that price. I mean, and you know, right? Like, I might do a little video show report for the people who aren't there who have missed out. We can always. I think we should start doing that little show reports. I'm sure yeah. I did do one like last year. Yeah, yeah, in Manchester or something. Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, you're just going to make people jealous who can't make it then, really. Oh no, it's just <laughs> it's just uh, more reason to come next time. Well, actually, I think there'll be a lot of video reports this time. Considering we've got five of the biggest oh, gosh, British yeah, YouTubers yeah, yeah. there, you know what I mean? It should be well covered <laughs> on YouTube, I imagine. Yeah, I'll just compile all their clips. And just do no <laughs> filming myself. So we are going to be there February 10th and 11th. If you want to come down, get your tickets sorted right now. You can get those on our website, theretrohour.com. Now, recorded live at All Your Bass Festival, another event that we were at recently. This is one of my favourite panels that we've done in a long time. Oh, yeah. This was uh, from Confetti and the National Video Games Arcade and also Sumo Digital. Such a good chat. Now, we're going to talk about video game music. Rob Hubbard, David Wise and Graeme Norgate. If you're going to talk about video game music, I think these are the right guys for the job. Totally. So enjoy this, and we'll see you next week. Ciao. Actually, you two gentlemen need uh, no introduction, but I will let you do that. Introduce yourself, please, and tell, tell us what you're famous for. Okay, I'm Graham Norgate, and I expect I'm famous for Goldeneye. I'm Rob Hubbard, I did a lot of stuff on in the 80s on C64 and then I did a lot of stuff on Sega Genesis and uh, PC, a few Amiga things, PlayStation, 3DO. 
quite a varied bunch of systems there. Like, yeah. And David Wise is going to join us. He's just packing up his stuff at the moment. Yeah, it should be up in a bit. <laughs> so it's always quite good to find out, you know, everyone kind of remembers the first system they got and where they got started. So, Graham, where did it all start for you? What was the first system you got and what kind of stuff were you doing on that machine when you first got it? And why did you get a computer? Um, well, the first system I actually got was the Atari VCS, the 2600. Um, not very well known for its uh, glorious sound. Um, but that's sort of got me into the bug of computer games. And then really it was this chap here that got me into the path I was, I was doing. I, I think it was pretty sure the first piece of music I heard was Monty on the Run. And I thought, how can a computer do that? That was, that was incredible. And from then it was like, well, I like playing computer games and I really like music on the computer. So that was, that was my then goal from, from about 12. That, that's what I'm gonna do. And I don't, know, I don't know what I'd be doing if I hadn't heard that tune all those years ago. <laughs> not really, I'd bear not think about it. So Rob changed your life, really? Yes, he did. I'm yeah. quite nervous to be sat next to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> So which system did you get first then to start composing music on then? What, what right. did that start for you? So didn't get very far on the Commodore because you had to know machine code really to get anything decent out of it and I, I couldn't wrap my head around that. So it was the Amiga 500 and um, a piece of software called Sound Tracker. It's a little four channel um, sample based tracking program. And um, I just spent the, uh, you know, sort of 16, 17, 18, just learning how to, to write music on that. Uh, none of those will ever see the light of day, <laughs> um, hopefully. Um, but um, yeah, that was my first sort of uh, the first thing that enabled me to make music, and it, it snowballed from there. What about you, Rob? What was the question? Yeah, wh where did it start? What was the first machine you composed on? Uh, well, the first machine that I actually had was a C64. There wasn't any machine before that, so um, that was really the first machine that I had. It was a choice between a memo tech or actually no, that's not that's not true. I did have a machine before that because there was the um, ZX eighty. Yeah. Was the one with the little touch things. Not particular keyboard thing. Yeah. yeah. And there was a bit of a, a black market thing with those things where you know <laughs> people would just you know you want one for like you know. 50 pence or something you know <laughs> so I actually did have I actually did have one of those um, what ZX80 mm. but the, the keyboard never worked did it no you had to really bash down on the keys yeah you had to really it. bash down on the keys to get anything and of course the thing never really worked properly did it and not a famous machine for music really was it <laughs> no no so I had that for a, about maybe half a second mm. before it went in the bin <laughs> And then uh, there was things like a, um, the Memo Tech and a few other weird machines that I was considering. And then uh, C64 came on the market with the Elephant Memory. So that's the, that was the one that I decided to buy. And how did you start making music on the 64 then? What was the process of learning that? Um, or teaching yourself, I guess? No, in the early days it was, you, you used to get all these um, computer magazines that had listings you know basic thing and then at the end of the article there'd be a whole lot of put data statements that you had to type in and they never ever worked 
Actually typed in about 20 pages. Yeah, you type in about 20 pages from the magazine (laughs) and then like nothing happens, you know, just goes, it just crashes or something, you know. So, um, you know, you get the manual and uh, the Commodore manual and look up the uh, registers and all that kind of thing and then start poking around yourself, you know. Um, Eventually you got something working in basic, which was just, you know, sounded like a dyslexic musician yeah. in terms in terms of like rhythm because it, you know you couldn't get anything rhythmically to work in time because the basic was so slow so then you had to learn machine code and uh, there was a book called Dr. Watson's <laughs> assembler or machine code or something which had like didn't have the proper mnemonics for 6502 so but anyway it, it got you into learning hexadecimal, binary, and all that, you know, and um, that really—it wasn't too difficult to learn that stuff, you know. I got a pretty strong math background, so you know that came quite easily. And um, once you figure out, you know, how interrupts work, then it's plain sailing. So, who were you listening to? Like, which musicians influenced you? Um, musically, out, it could be outside of video games. Um, <laughs> at the time, I was a bit of a bit of a, a classical geek, so I'd listen to Gershwin and Beethoven and stuff like that. Mostly because I was doing it at school. Um, I wasn't really into pop music um, until so until I was like, so it was classical music, and then I was just listening to synth music. <laughs> <laughs> I'd buy the games for, they were probably one ninety nine or something, the Mastertronic games and stuff, because you knew that Rob had done the music, or Martin Galway had done the music, he, I didn't know he did Ocean, but you know, you knew the composer of the game, because you'd read it in Zap 64 or something, go down the shop and spend your paper round money on it, and I'd make tapes out of that, that I'm that nerdy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that's kind of what I was listening to as I was growing up. And you, Rob? Well, um, my musical background covers the whole spectrum of stuff, really. So um, I started, you know, as a little kid learning classical piano. And there's certain things that just stay with you, you know. Um, I've always loved Chopin. Um, Then, you know, I um, like a lot of classical music. And then uh, later on, I... um, got into a lot of jazz, started playing a lot of jazz. So people, Chick Corea and, you know, Michael Brecker and Herbie Hancock and all those sort of, all those sort of players, you know. And, um, and then, of course, you know, during the 80s, there was the whole kind of synth pop thing going on mm. and people like Jean-Michel Jarre and uh, the New Romantics, they were called, yeah. you know which was uh, Human League and... Um, Cabaret. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there was a fantastic album of the remix of um, the Human League album. Um, oh, Reproduction, was it? That the, I can't remember it was what it was. Dancing, wasn't it? There was a, there was a, a remix Dare. album of the thing. Yeah, is that what, what it was? It was a remix of Dare, I think, and it was uh, called Love and Dancing. Yeah, which was really, really, you know, kind of cool stuff, and it was all, people were, like, hooking up you know, synth with control voltage triggers. So, you know, I was kind of into all that as well. So, 
big spectrum then. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. And I've got the because I was still working as a musician, I would had to keep up to date with the with what was going on in the pop world. With you know, and you know, I had to transcribe and arrange a lot of pop music as well. Was part of what I was doing. You know. What about the first games you actually got released then? The uh, soundtracks you worked on of like you know for the first games. So what about you, Graham? What was the first project that you did commercially then, and how did you get into it? Uh, well, I stick around, and I'll be able to bore you with the details. But <laughs> the first game was was when I worked at Rare. It was Killer Instinct. It was an arcade uh, coin-up game, um, and I thought, well, this is brilliant because at the time there's not very many restrictions, and you could just you know do your do your tunes and get them on there. Um, well, that was kind of like an easy, easy route in. And then I found out that actually no consoles are quite a lot harder to, to work on. But uh, yeah, it was it was those early '90s games at Rare. I, I did some sort of work on the Amiga late '80s for Houston Consultants, mm-hmm. I think they were called. But it, it didn't really go anywhere. So it was like a, a one off, one off. And then it wasn't until I'd um, badgered Rare enough and they'd said, "Oh, go on then, I'll give you a job." But things started taking off. What was the process of like applying for it then? Did you send discs in the post or? Um, it was actually, it was, a, it was an advert on, in the back of Edge magazine um, just saying they were looking for musicians and I, I didn't really think anything of it. I didn't realise, I, I sent a tape, I think it must have been a tape or something and thought well you know it'd be great if something came of it but I didn't expect anything and it was weeks and weeks had gone on and um, yeah it, it all happened eventually and I thought right I'm gonna have to go and move to the Midlands and stuff so <laughs> this, this is actually happening. And here you are. And here I am, yeah, still in the Midlands. <laughs> what about you Rob then? What was the first project that you worked on and how did you get it? I kind of dabbled with some educational software and wrote my own graphics utilities and wrote this stuff to teach people music and um, that I thought it was going to be a big thing and of course it didn't happen. So then I thought, well, I started looking at some of the Tasket games and I thought, okay, maybe I've got to get into games. And I um, got involved writing a game, which the company went bust just as I was finishing the game. And you know, I did all the graphics and all the music and everything, wrote all the code. And people thought the graphics were okay. They thought the game sucked, but they thought the music was cool. <laughs> So I thought, well, hang on, maybe I should just um, concentrate on doing music because at that time, you know, in the early 80s, some of the games, you know, had like all the right notes with all the wrong sounds and completely in the wrong place and also out of tune. So I thought there's got to be a there's got to be an opening for somebody who can at least get the notes, at least 90 percent of them in the right place, you know. (laughs) So. I did some demos and I did went through all the magazines, got all the addresses that I could find of every software house and every developer and sent them a whole, whole lot of stuff with the flyers and demos and, and hoping that I would get a, a gig. Nothing happened. So I, I did that for about six months. Nothing happened. And then um, um, eventually, somebody uh, called up and said, "We, I'd like you to do something." And I can't remember which one it was, 
I think it's probably one of the Mastertronics games. Um, I think the early, the, I think the earliest thing was probably Action Biker for Mastertronics, which was I think hundred quid, which was awesome at the time. Yeah. Wow! <laughs> write a little tune and get a hundred quid. Can't go wrong, can you? Can't get better than that. Can't get, doesn't get better than that, does it? <laughs> What's the kind of strangest method you've used to create a sound effect or an instrument or, or kind of a little cheat to create a noise? I got all my team in once to make silly vocal noises, which I then pieced back together to make, I wouldn't say it's a very melodic, but a, sort of as a rhythm. Um, I'm not saying that's the most the wackiest thing I've ever done, <laughs> but it's the thing I can now remember. Um, so I'd get them in one by one and just, just you know, make some, some, something silly and then I'd sample them all up and, and uh, make a rhythm out of it. Whether it worked or not, who can say, but you know, it was fun to do. Yeah. Uh, and sort of things like that. It's, it's trying to, I always try and think of something a little bit strange to put in a piece. I always have like, like a sound effect track to um, give it a little bit of flavour, I guess. Are you often like listening around for what might make a good sound effect in life? Do you hear like Yeah, that? we... Um, the classic thing of when you first buy a microphone that ran the house and you know recorded the things around the house like the toilet flushing or um, scraping a bike wheel and stuff like that and I've used that bike wheel in in a lot of stuff and slowing it down and stuff it, it sounds like a like a, a weird piano or something but it's it's kind of a otherworldly sound so yeah you do you you gather these sounds and and over time they they show up in pieces that you do and stuff like that. It's a bit like Doctor Who when they use the uh, yeah. piano strings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Rob? You used any unusual methods for...? <coughs> I used to do stuff before I did the C64. Okay, I had some gear at home and um, I remember... I used to get drunk quite frequently <laughs> when I was young. <laughs> and I remember just going around pubs stealing beer trays. And then I <laughs> had about six or seven beer trays and I hung them up <laughs> from, the, from the ceiling <laughs> and went, started bashing these things <laughs> and recording them. That's probably, <laughs> that's probably one of the weirdest things. At like four in the morning. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's like when you're drunk and you start stealing police codes yeah. and things like that. Hang on, how did I get that? You know? So in terms of, you know, briefs that you get from developers when they're making a game, I mean, have you had any, like, memorable briefs? Any other, are they any good? Do they give you direction? Or any really weird ones, maybe, that stick in your mind? I've had some unhelpful ones, definitely. Um, uh, I remember one Game Boy game... Uh, I asked the programmer, I said, well, what, what, what do you have in mind? He's like, good music. I'm like, right, okay, that's, that's, that's helpful. And I like Pink Floyd. It's <laughs> 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 the Game Boy, come on. <laughs> um, so, yeah, those, those are always helpful. Or um, I, I remember, it wasn't actually me, but a friend of mine was doing uh, a, a fire level in Donkey Kong. So, you know, it's a Donkey Kong game. It's... You, you, you can picture the scene and the designer said um, so it was like a lava level so he said uh, I know I've got one brought tape in it was Prodigy's Firestarter like, yeah that's really suitable yeah. we'll, we'll, go, we'll go with that um, so yeah you get a lot of those sort of things um, usually it's it's always 
the younger designers, it's always their favourite music. So, you know, can we put some punk and two-tone in it? So, probably not. It's a baseball game, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, you just have to smile politely and then try and think of a brief yourself, usually. What about you, Rob? Any impossible missions that you've done or any briefs that were a bit out there? Yeah, a lot of loads, actually. The um, thing that I'm talking about later on is arcade classics. I called the guy up, which was before that it was called Big Four Pack. I, I called the guy up. I said, "What do you have in mind?" And he's, he's like, "Just do some Hendrix, man." <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> yeah, man. Hendrix, man. Okay. So that was uh, <laughs> on the Commodore 64. Yeah, yeah. That was a bit of a challenge. And then uh, the other. Thing that really just was awful was when I did a game called Populous, mm. where you played God. And I called up the, I was working for EA at the time. I called up the guy, and he goes through this list of sound effects. And this is on a machine called the PC, which for games is short for piece of crap, <laughs> <laughs> because audio-wise it was just a nightmare. You had to support Covox. You had a Tandy 1000 version. You had like Adlib board, and you had this PC beep, right? So I calls the guy up and goes through this sound effect. He says, uh, "I'd like the sound effect of demented pygmies sitting by the campfire." <laughs> I thought, I'm imagining well, that now. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's going to be a hell of a challenge to do that with a little PC speaker that can either do a beep or not do a beep, yeah. you know. <laughs> So I kind of just went through the list like like um, the Marx Brothers with the clauses, you know, <laughs> that one up, not that one, not that one, not that one. So yeah, that one stands out as demented pygmies. <laughs> so do you think video game music's a lot more credible now compared to when you started? Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a it's a cliche, but it, up until. I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, every, it, anyone you told that's what you did. Oh, you do the bleeps and bloops, and then start doing the Game Boy tune or something, which, yeah, okay, I did used to do that as well, but um, it's, it, it, come along, it came a long way before people actually accepted it, and now it's kind of, oh, it's a sort of credible art form. Um, and, I mean, as, as, as we've seen now people are actually re-releasing stuff on vinyl which I find is incredible that you know even cassette really <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> cassette's getting popular blimey <laughs> what do you think Robert do you think is, is it attitudes changed to video game music since you started oh yeah absolutely yeah what was yeah. it like in the early days in, well, in the early days it was um, <clears throat> you had complete freedom about what you could do hmm. and uh, the 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 stuff that was happening kind of went parallel to um, the uh, uh, the demo scene culture that evolved during the 80s so things got quite bizarre and then um, eventually as the games got more involved and got bigger then you know individuals kind of tended to lose control because then uh, you had to do something which was very commercial for the game so and then uh, it became that the 
marketing and the production team were calling all the shots about what was required. Mm. So it changed a lot in that respect. Well, David Weiser just joined us. Hello, David. Hello, hello. So, hello. so, so this podcast, how is it going? Is it going out live or is it uh, being uh, No, recorded? we're just recording it at the okay, moment. Fine, yeah. lovely. Thank you. So, I mean, it might be nice to get your answer on that. I mean, in terms of when you first started in video games versus today, yes. do you think video game music's now become a more credible art form and is it more respected by the general public? It, it's certainly taken on a, a different angle. Uh, totally respected. It's quite a big thing now, isn't it? Um, I was, I was just saying to Alice that last year I went over to Magfest and it's a big festival, it's called Music and Games Festival. 27,000 people turned up for that festival and they're there just to celebrate games music. It's immense and um, hopefully, all being well, I'm going back next year. So um, just to do a bit more um, stuff. It's just a great event. <laughs> so many people, there, all, most of them are musicians. They'll just do, be jamming in, in the hallways, in the different stages and at night they've got this huge concert hall which holds about 4,000 people and the bands there they'll play video game music through until about two or three in the morning at really loud volume and people go mental for it it's fantastic so yes it's definitely um, it definitely got a life of its own well let's talk about your most famous projects then the thing you're most known for what do you say it is Graham and how did the story of that project start and how did you approach the music of it well I'd like to say Tons Litters, but I have to say Golden Eye because that's the one that <laughs> people have heard of. Um, um, and the story of that was it was originally going to be a, a Super Nintendo game. But uh, our le uh, team leader, Martin Hollis, said that he, he didn't want to do it on the Super Nintendo. He thought that by the time we actually got it finished, it would be ready for the next um, uh, platform, which was the N64. So the story of that music is... is pretty straightforward really because we we had the license to the Bond theme so it was like go nuts you know um, it was such I mean that that theme has got such a wealth of different parts that you can pick and choose for each piece of music we wrote for the game um, that 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 was I wouldn't say it was easy because we still had to squeeze it into the console and and um, you know memory was always oh, it, it still is tight even today because um, as the memory increases, the stuff you want to do expands as well. You always want to do more than you can, you've got the capabilities of. Um, but yeah, having having that as a project to work on was just fantastic. I mean, it's 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 in hindsight, it's easy to say, oh, we always knew it was going to be popular and, and knew it was going to do well. But really, and truthfully, we didn't. We, we were so close to it, having worked on it for a couple of years, that. We didn't have a clue when it came out if it was going to be any good at all, you know, or if people would like it. Um, but luckily, they did. I mean, the N64 was quite an interesting system for the time because most other platforms had moved to CD audio then, but that was still <coughs> cartridge-based. So I guess yeah. that was a limitation, was it? Oh, absolutely. I, um, well, it, it was, but in other ways, it gave you some freedom as well because you could do quite a lot with MIDI. You could... Uh, um, an example would be the... Uh, Super Mario World on the SNES, when you get onto Yoshi and it, the, another channel comes into the tune, you've got that sort of, sort of woodblock sound. So you could do all that kind of thing with with the N64. Um, 
but yes, it would, would have been nice to have CD quality, quality as well, but that was not to be. Yeah, if I could just interject, uh, on the N64 for us working at Rare, to have MIDI was a big jump because <laughs> yeah. before that we typed it in, so MIDI was a big thing, that, that gave us a lot of freedom. So we were still jumping up and down about actually having MIDI and being able to play the parts in, um, let alone CD audio, which was the next step. Everybody else was using it, but we were, we were quite happy. We got MIDI. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Rob? What, what do you say is a game you're most known for then, and how did you approach making that, that audio? The game that I'm most known for? I don't know. That's up to, that's up to other people to mm -hmm. say, really. It's not my... It's not up to me to say, really, is it? Let's talk about maybe international karate, and that's obviously one that's often mentioned, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, and that was like 15 minutes long on the Commodore 64? The guys specifically asked for that um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Mm. So can you do something like that? Like, okay. So I kind of used, used a bit of the feel of that, and then I expanded it, you know, and took it through various transformations. And um, I, uh, 2005, I did a, an orchestral suite based on international karate, where I developed all the themes and orchestrated the whole thing to get that played in Leipzig. I mean, I, I guess that, that was actually quite a long soundtrack. Maybe it wasn't quite 15 minutes, but I remember a lot of games at the time on the C64 that had maybe a minute of music that would just loop. Yeah. But was that kind of something you had in mind, that it would have to be longer to I always, keep attention? Yeah, yeah, because I always thought that, you know, if you just do a minute, it's going to just drive people nuts, you know. Parents are going to be throwing the computer and the kids out the window you know? <laughs> so it was right from the right from the early days I thought you know I need to I can't just write like uh, an A section a B section repeat A section twice and that'll do you have to write A section B C D section to make it interesting and make it like at least you know six or seven minutes before it loops so that it you know, you've got a fighting chance that it doesn't drive people nuts. That was the way I always thought about it. That's why some of these things ended up getting to be, you know, 12 and 13 minutes long, you know. That was an achievement in 64K. I mean, how much, how much kilobytes of memory did you normally have to work with? Because I don't have any source code, because that's another long story. I had to, I reverse engineered a couple of SID files. I reverse engineered Sanction. The whole lot of that is like, 3,500 bytes wow. code and everything, you know. <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Crazy, yeah. you know. But I mean, I had projects where, like, a, there was a machine called Amstrad, uh, what was it called? CP CPC. Yeah, yeah. Where I think I had like 2,000 bytes for everything, you know. So that's another Marx Brothers thing. Here's a yeah. bit of, here's a routine. <laughs> Whoop, rip that out, get rid of that. You know. I think a pixel on the screen takes more memory than that today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. What about you, David? The game you're most known for and the kind of story behind it? Oh, um, let me see. Uh, probably the Donkey Kong Country series, I'd say. Um, and the story behind it was, well, we live, uh, you know, well, not lived, but we did there sometimes. Uh, Rare was next to Twycross Zoo and there were lots of monkeys there. That's not the real story. But, um, <laughs> Uh, Nintendo had invested heavily into Rare and mainly due to the fact that we got this 3D rendering graphics going so instead of looking like 2D sprites it now looked like 3D sprites and compared to everything else at the time it looked quite, quite
quite magical really. It looks as though you could almost take them out of the screen by comparison. And um, Nintendo invested lots of money into us and, and we were going to do a game and they decided that the uh, fighting game and also one featuring monkeys were, were going to be the two games that we were working on. So Killer Instinct and Donkey Kong Country series. And um, that's, that's really where, where me and Graham come in really. Well, how did you approach making the music for the game? Um, uh, I'm quite nerdish about it, really. You know, so if, if you want to nerd out, uh, we'd only got 64K, which um, 64K is is tiny. You know, most small sounds are megabytes long these days. Um, 64K, it's t I can't stress how tiny 64K is. It's minuscule. So to actually get something like Killer Instinct or or the DKC soundtrack on 64K of memory is quite a technical effort. And what, what I did, I, I borrowed the system from, uh, it's called a Korg Wave Station. It uses lots of single cycle waveforms. And that they go through, so if you want a filter sweep, you've, um, you sample the keyboard at various different cutoff frequencies, uh, just have a single cycle. And if you sweep, and suddenly you've got filter sweep on the SNES and it's not supposed to be possible. And so it was that level of nerdish detail that I went into and that's how I got the soundtrack to sound different from just using MIDI and sort of plonky tunes. We could actually have something that, that gave a bit of sonic uh, detail in, into the sound. So that game really pushed us now, didn't it? It, it did, it yes, uh, both graphically and um, probably from a, an audio point as well. And, and also having some decent programmers as well who could um, throw samples into the stack and off it again and things that were above my head at the time. So. Yeah, having a few good programmers is, is essential when you've only got 64k of memory. Or Rob. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, three and a half thousand bytes and reverse engineering, that's uh, kudos. Well, let's talk about the, the British sound. I mean, do you think the sound of video games here in Britain over the years was different to what you might hear in Japan or, or America? Did it have a kind of unique approach? Is there a defined sound? Yeah, yeah well, I, I don't know if there's a defined sound, really. I mean, you... With a mi you can spot a Japanese soundtrack. I mean, it's you know those Final Fantasy um, scores and stuff. You you hear them and you know, you know them. Um, I don't know if there's a British not not to my ears anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, we like myself and Dave when we were working at Rare, we just were doing what we were doing. We weren't trying to um, sort of match up to to an, an, an the next composer really because I mean that was the time before the internet, and it sounds ridiculous now, but you know, you didn't have that sort of connection to everything. You were very insular in, in what you were doing. I mean, the only other game music I'd hear, I would hear would be from the other guys from the music block. Um, you might get snippets when you went to the testing block and played some of the game and stuff, but yeah, not, not to my, you, you'd know more than me, I think. Well, so so yeah, we, we were basically locked away in a farmhouse in the middle of the Leicestershire countryside. <laughs> and as far as we knew, we were the only game composers in the world. And, um, and we were locked up there of our own volition, funnily enough. And we used to go there every day. But the, everything that was happening in the outside world, we had no idea. We were just really competing with mm. each other just to try and you know, get the edge over the next soundtrack. And um, yeah, Another composer, Grant Kirkhope, who I'm sure some of you have heard of, was, was in what used to be the chicken shed yes. when he first started. <laughs> I guess it must have made you quite innovative, though, because you had to do it all in-house and yourself then, I guess, you're not getting these outside kind of... Well, we, we had separate offices, and um, we were away from the teams as well, even. It was, it was quite bizarre the way it, it kind of worked. 
So we'd have our own office and we'd be there, there on our own all day, chipping away at chip music, really. Um, very, very insular, very, yeah, it's not healthy, not from a mental <laughs> health kind of perspective. But then, you know, but between us, we, we managed to get a few good tunes out and people still fortunately um, like to play them today. Well, with you, Rob, I mean, you mentioned like the new romantics kind of influence. And I know the Commodore 64 in particular was much, like it was a very big machine in Europe. Had success in America, but I think the demo scene and all that was very much a European thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. did, were you aware of many other things happening outside of the UK at that time? Obviously, pre-internet. And um, the, uh, there's always been a massive difference culturally and musically between the US and the UK. In the UK, um, everybody has, you know, has heard of um, Depeche Mode or somebody, you know. In America, you've got like 26 million different stations and everybody listens to something completely different. It's just so diverse, you know. Um, so, in the late 80s, there was this whole cultural thing with the video game music, which was very kind of much more exploring and trying to be innovative. As soon as I go to the States, it's like it's like hitting a brick wall. I've then got to like, you know, turn all that off and listen, listen to nothing but CBS and ABC and NBC and basically do something so far on the middle of the road you couldn't deviate two millimeters and um, you had to get used to that very very quickly and I, I don't think that uh, the whole thing between American music and British music I don't think that that difference has ever changed mm. yeah it's one of those things that always comes back down to the lowest common denominator if it's going to be appreciated by as many people as possible and then trying to get some form of innovation into that as well is, is, is really our challenge uh, so what project have you enjoyed making the most like, out of all of the soundtracks? Um, it's going to be time splitters because I, the, the rain, I don't know if anyone's aware of it, it's a first person shooter, but it, it's based in lots of different time zones and uh, you know, in space and jungles, all that kind of stuff. It was a local game as well, wasn't it? It was Tons. a local game for yeah. local people. Which is <laughs> 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 just why we're not still making them. <laughs> um, yeah, it's made in Nottingham at Free Radical. So there I could just go nuts because it, no tune was the same, which is kind of what I enjoy. Um, got very uh, low board and thresholds and attention problems. So to being able to like write um, music for an Aztec jungle one week and then you're in space in Mars the next week was, was fantastic. That was, and it was also, um, we didn't really at that point have any pub, like publishers leaning on you it was IDOS and they were very much like oh you guys you can just you know you know what you're doing which was the first and last time that has ever happened <laughs> now it's uh, very very much uh, a stricter hold on um, on what gets produced so having that freedom was just lovely and, and also because of that I don't know if anybody's played Time Splitters 2 but it is a phenomenal game and I think it sort of left off where Goldeneye that was, that was our that was our plan. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So if, if anyone hasn't played it, dig it out and, and go and play. It's a great game. Whenever, whenever we go to retro gaming shows, like our friends come, we literally they're on there. Time splits two all day on the yes. arcade. Yeah, the queue up, the, they get to the end of yeah. the queue, queue up again, go on it again. So four hours on it last yeah, time, yeah. weren't they? It's a really playable yeah. game. Very addictive. What about you, Rob? Is there any projects that you worked on that really stick in your mind? Has been really enjoyable. Uh, probably the Sherlock Holmes 3D project. 
one of the few opportunities where I could really uh, get stuck in musically and branch out um, and do something a lot more um, more classical, a bit more involved musically, exploring different th you know aspects, adding a bit counterpoint and some of that stuff. Um, that was so different from like the other stuff that I got pigeonholed at a year doing all the sports stuff. You know, I got sick of trying to write sports themes. You know, yeah. <laughs> Where did you go with those? <laughs> well, the 3DO was quite an interesting platform. So, I mean, I don't know if anyone remembers it, but it was a very expensive console, wasn't it? Really high end. I think it came out for about six hundred pounds in nineteen ninety three. Um, well, it was later than ninety three. I was around, pre-PlayStation, pre I think it was, maybe 93, 94. It was pre, yeah. Yeah, it, it must have been around then, but it was... What year was the PlayStation 1? That came 94 in Japan, I think. Did it? Yeah, so... Well, maybe it was somewhere, the three, yeah. But it was a very groundbreaking machine, and I mean, was, was working on that system, did it feel like a big upgrade? Yeah, I mean, because everything was one of, that was one of the few first projects that was going to be streaming audio from CD, so I wasn't stuck, you know, stuck with MIDI or anything, it was digital audio. Yeah, it was, the whole concept of 3DO was basically ahead of its time, you know, and it wasn't going to succeed, was it? <laughs> I mean, you, you look at the Xbox One and that today, they're kind yeah. of doing a similar kind of thing, aren't they? Like an all-in-one media kind of yeah. centre, yeah. yeah, well, 20 yeah. years earlier though. Yeah. So what's the best soundtrack you kind of enjoyed working on? Um, I enjoy working on them all, to, to be <laughs> honest. Every, every, well, everyone's a new experience, because you've done the last one. And I don't, I'm sure Graham and Rob are the same, that once you've, you've done the soundtrack, you're so, um, you're so involved with it that when you can move on to the next thing, it's like a breath of fresh air. So uh, they've all had technical challenges. And so I can't really put a favourite down, but yeah, I enjoy, enjoy them all really. Obviously the handheld systems must have had like their own approach to making music for them. I mean, did you find it, it was very different to work on those? Do you have to maybe go a bit back to roots when you were working on like the Game Boy systems, for example? Game Boy, yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I mean, mobile nowadays, we're, we're a bit luckier because we have a lot more memory and, and stuff like that. But um, I did work on a Game Boy Advance game, which um, sonically wasn't that advanced. <laughs> uh, that was, again, squeezing, squeezing little sounds into to no space. Um, and it, it was a lot of work for for a quite little payoff, really. I don't mean financially. I just mean yeah. you know you spend all day on it and you listen back to it. And still sounds bad. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's nothing you can do with a 10 kilohertz sample to make it sound any better sometimes. But yeah. Um, but yeah, it's all about approaching approaching the the, the music from a different. Um, aspect. If you know you've got those limitations, um, then you can write for that system and try and get the, the best out of it. It's when you're you're having to um, squeeze something that shouldn't fit into it that it, you come up with the problems because you're you know it's um, it, you're you're not writing for its strengths. Then um, again, I'll be talking about that in about half an hour. <laughs> Did you find the same with it? Oh, yeah. definitely. And again, the Game Boy Advance, it really should have been called the Game Boy Backward. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it was a, it was a, it, I mean, it was a physical unit like that. I think it had one little tiny speaker on it, which meant it had no high end and it had no bass end. Uh, you, you only had mid range and everything was fighting for the mid range. So you had to choose the sounds that you use very, very carefully. And 
it was only 8-bit, so it was definitely a step backwards from the Super NES, and there was no compression on it. It was an 8-bit sample, very noisy. So not only did you have no bass and no treble, you had a lot of noise as well in there. And, and as Graham rightly said, uh, there was very little reward for the amount of work that you had to put in. But, you know, that was the system, and, you know, you just got on with it and made the best of it. Do you do much handheld work? No, systems? nothing. I guess it must have been a bit like, though, the methods that you probably would have used on the Commodore 64, I guess, would have been kind of 8-bit samples or 8-bit eight, eight kind of sound chips and stuff, I guess. You know, it would have been very much back to roots, which for the mid-90s must have been like you going back in time 10 years. Yeah, a little bit. I, I enjoyed the Game Boy stuff, mm. actually, because that was very much like writing for a, for a chip. And um, you knew you know, people would play, when people play a, a game, I'm talking the original Game Boy, when you play that, you know a Game Boy sounds like a Game Boy. So if you can do some tricks and stuff, it, it's, you, you feel a bit good about yourself. But with the advance, it was um, yeah, it was trying to do too much with too little processing power and too, too little memory. How much polyphony did you have on that? I can't even remember. I think we did, um, I think we'd had eight channel, eight channels or something. Yeah, yeah. So eight channels, eight bit, very little memory, yeah. and you had to share it with sound effects. So, in in real terms, you had five channels. How much memory did you have then? Peanuts, um, really. Just if you got eight, eight, eight bit samples, like you, you know, no compression and eight channels. I, I, I just remember it being very small. It would have been probably two hundred and fifty six k or something, something stupid like that. Mm. It was better than the Super NES for sample data. Yeah but it just sounded a lot worse, mm -hmm. although you had more data to play with. The fact that you couldn't compress it meant you needed a lot more memory. And so even though you had, I don't know, eight times as much, you couldn't do eight times as much with it. Yeah. Well, what was the most frustrating system to program on? That one. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, say, I'd say the SNES, actually, cause, um, because it was pre-MIDI, so typing everything in hex was frustrating because if you got one note length wrong then it would go out of sync with all the other channels and then you'd just you'd be, be debugging like a coder really trying to find out where you've got where you've typed it wrong it's like typing in a listing or something you know back in the day and um yeah so that was totally frustrating from a time spent point of view because um it would just take forever to you know, to get those notes in yeah for me it's definitely the game boy advance because it was as you say, it was definitely the Game Boy backward, really, as far as sound goes. And it was very frustrating. Um, I, I converted a game called DKC3. Um, I returned, I wrote a new score because I wrote it for the actual hardware, which was a lot easier than trying to take somebody else's score and convert it, which I'm, I'm probably still be working on it now. It would be <laughs> impossible. It just wouldn't convert, so it was easy to start again. But it was, yeah, very little reward for a, a lot of hard work, and it still sounded compromise at the end of it. What about you, Rob, any systems that you looked at and you thought, oh, why am I working on this? Oh, PC, Yeah. without a doubt, you know, with all the different, you know, audio configurations that you had to support on the PC, you know, and um, <coughs> I developed a system with the music, which was MIDI based, where I would convert the variable length timestamps into 60 hertz timestamps. So channel 16 would be for the little PC speaker and then, you know, MIDI channels 13, 14 would be for the three voice Tandy and then there'd be 
the ad-lib would like make a selection from the role of MT32. But then at the end of all that, you did all the music stuff. You then had a list of, you know, 30-odd sound effects that you suddenly had to try to do for all these different configurations. And it was just, you know, um, an extreme test in, in, in mental tenacity and strength to will yourself to get through it. I mean, obviously, you guys are here today talking about these amazing game soundtracks that you've made over the years. I mean, I, does it kind of blow your mind a bit to think there's something you worked on maybe 20 years ago? People still love and they still want to talk about and hear about? 30 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> you, look, you look younger though, Rob. <laughs> does that kind of blow your mind though? Yeah, very much so. Um, I, it's, it still amazes me that, I mean, it's great because people will write to you and say, oh, you know, I love that and it, it meant so much to me and... and etc etc but um, you don't think of it at the time I mean I, I I don't what I'm working on now I don't think oh I really hope that someone likes it in 10 years because you're, you're just engrossed in what you're doing and there's been various misses as well as the hits obviously and but yeah it's it's fantastic it, it sort of I can prove to my my parents that it, it was a real job after all <laughs> <laughs> what about you um, I thought when I started my talk, I was just showing a, a part of the uh, Tokyo Philharmonic playing um, some of the DKC2 soundtrack that was originally composed 23 years ago or more. And it's nice that last year they, they put a concert together, all these different things, Final Fantasy, Donkey Kong. And it's, it's just fantastic to see a huge orchestra. Somebody's taken the time to do an arrangement of your music, put it on, it's, it sounds fantastic. And, you know, it's still got life. 20 plus years later it's uh, it's very humbling very good to see and i'm very thankful it makes a great promo video as well so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with you robin it's just like project hubbard i mean you kind of imagine that you'd be doing that 30 years after you first made those songs oh well to be honest um when i first started i actually thought that the whole thing was going to be just a little fad like yes. fashion or video games yeah. Yeah. yeah I actually thought that these one you know one pound 99 the games the whole thing would be a fad and I thought you know enjoy it while you can it's gonna last maybe a year and then these things are gonna be in the bin the C64s will be in the bin and that'll be the end of it and something else would have taken over I had no idea that you know 30 years down the line you know that people would still be remembering a lot of this stuff and that um, you know, um, I'm look on YouTube. Uh, Commando's got like five, half a million hits for God's sake. You know, yeah. 200, 250 comments or something. You know, it's it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And um, you know, I um, I get people saying, "No, oh, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have done this." And I'm, and it's kind of like um, very humbling and very flattering and kind of like you know, makes you think in a retrospective way that it sort of validates all the effort that I put into this stuff back then, you know. Um, so, so yeah. what was the question? <laughs> yeah. I think you answered it perfectly oh. there, and it was, I think it is yeah. testament to, you know, the, the hard work that you guys put in and the talent that you've had that people yeah. do remember all these years later. And, and just to add to that, I first met Rob last year in Norway, and yeah. one, of the, one of the nice things is that people invite you to all sorts of different places throughout the world to, to celebrate video game music, which I'm really thankful about, 
Norway is lovely, and then I got, I got to go to Magfest and lots of other places. And uh, uh, Magfest is in America, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, uh, Washington DC, and then uh, later on in the year I went down to Mexico. I went over to Ireland and uh, lots of other places. So it's it's very nice to be invited, and um, I, I like travelling. I like seeing the world. So who knew that what we were doing 25 years ago was going to uh, open up opportunities later on? But life's like that. It's uh, never know what's around the corner or what's going to come up later on so I'm, I'm very thankful for as Rob said for putting all the effort in and the hard work and uh, I'm, I'm pleased people still enjoy it and we're pleased that you guys come and join us to talk about it as well yeah, it's, it's been good fun yeah. please go and have a round of applause <laughs>